0: And what helped me in that situation, too, was I was able to disassociate my life before my injury and after my injury. So, in other words, I never compared myself to my able-bodied self before the injury. And I knew if I would focus in on that, I would never be happy. I would never be satisfied, no matter what progress I was getting. So, I just compared myself to when I was first injured, I had nothing below the neck. I'm shrugging both my shoulders like this is this is great and when you can compare it to that versus you know I was benching and cleaning before Uh, it just helps your spirits much more this is Chris Norton motivational speaker author of the power of faith when tragedy strikes and founder of the side foundation and you're listening to heads and tails podcast
1: Welcome back to the Heads and Tails Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Som, and each week I bring you an inspiring athlete story of perseverance or expert knowledge in the field of sports health and safety. Just like flipping a coin, you can't control what happens to you in sports or in life. You can always control how you respond. This is my response after suffering a traumatic brain injury in a high school football game, and I hope it leaves you feeling both inspired and informed. Welcome back to the Heads and Tails Podcast. This week I'm interviewing Chris Norton, um, and I actually was brought to his story from Eric LeGrand, who was a previous guest on this podcast, and Eric shared a live video that uh, Chris was doing with his uh, workout, and he was doing some therapy, and just the look of determination in his eyes and the fight this kid had, I knew I had to get him on the podcast. So uh, Chris's story is on October 16, 2010, which I believe is the same date as Eric LeGrand's injury. Um, he was severely injured while making a tackle on a kickoff for Luther College in Iowa, which fractured his C3 and C4 vertebrae. After being told he had a 3% chance of ever regaining movement below his neck, Chris has defined the odds every step of the way. Most recently, Chris has been able to stand unassisted for four minutes and walk across the stage at his graduation. Since Chris's injury, he has also set up the SICAN Foundation, which raises funds to address equipment and other needs at hospitals and rehabilitation centers for patients that weren't as fortunate as he was. In addition, he has co-authored a book uh, with his dad called The Power of Faith When Tragedy Strikes, and he's also uh, a motivational speaker through Power to Stand. And I'm really excited to have you on today, Chris. Um, If you could just start off by kind of giving us a little bit of background about your You know, your football career, like position, years played, you know, type of player you were.
0: Yeah, for sure. Thanks, Kevin, for having me on the show. Um, I grew up just loving football, played football my whole life. Uh, Just, uh, you know, when you strap on the pads and the helmet, uh, you know, you can just be, you can just let it loose. You're just, uh, you can just flip the switch and I I always embrace the contact and uh, the physicality of the game. I just love that part of it and the toughness aspect. And so growing up, you know, I was always playing uh, like the strong safety, um, trying to be like a, a Brian Dawkins or uh, one of those superstars, uh, Ed Reed. I always idolized my game after them and I, I wanted to play college football. You know, after high school, you know, I was a, a good enough player just to play like a D3 school at Luther College. I went there in the fall of 2010 and uh, that was my freshman year, and just halfway through the season, October 16, 2010, while I was making a a play on special teams, we kicked the ball off, and I made a diving tackle, and just a freak accident where my helmet collided with his knees, and I was left motionless from the neck down in a blink of an eye. Uh, it was just something that, you know, you never really think about uh, that could happen to you. Uh, like I said, I was aggressive, and... I embrace contact, but I never have been concussed before. I've never was worried about injuries. I always try to play it safe as well, but sometimes, you know, accidents happen.
1: Right, yeah, you can't can't control everything, which is, I know, one of your, your mantras. Um, so, w- with that tackle, do you remember, like, if you went in with your head down, or was it just, like, a, was it really just, like, a freak thing that he just happened to, like, knee in the head at the right angle or whatever?
0: You know, I was... Diving for his legs, I was going really low, so I just lunged forward and I wanted my head and my body to be in front of the ball carrier, like a, a normal routine tackle, but just mistimed it where instead of getting my body in front of him to trip him up, my head collided right with the side of his legs. So something that I wasn't coming straight downhill, It was kind of uh, at an angle from the like side. Right. Yeah, and I was, I was always one of the smallest guys in the field. I was never very big, uh, but I knew I could go lower than them. That I could take out anybody, and so right. I was trying to uh, go out low because the guy was running the ball was like a fullback build, and I just did what I've always done uh, a thousand times, but this time just uh, hit him in the wrong spot, uh, just a mistime thing, and um, you know here I am.
1: Right. Yeah, and, a lot of, and a lot of times too, like when you go low, obviously like when the, you're trying to get a bigger guy down, you know, if you go low, like you almost have to put your head down. Like there's no way to keep your head up. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. it may, or at least it makes it much more difficult to do so. So
0: For once,
1: sure. you know, the the hit happened and you were on the ground, like what were your initial thoughts? Like, thought like what, were you, no- what were you feeling?
0: I thought nothing of it at the time. I thought this is weird. I thought maybe I had a stinger, where my body just went numb uh, temporarily, in a matter of seconds or minutes, I'll be able to jump off the field, and as time went on, my feeling wasn't coming back, my movement wasn't coming back, eventually they stopped the game, the trainers run out, I was embarrassed, I thought, I just want to get off to the side, I'll be okay, I can't move right now, just give me a minute. And again, time just kept going and going with no changes. After a while, when they called in for the EMTs, and the EMTs then called in for a helicopter, that's when I knew the severity of the situation. But I was really calm considering I just thought naively that bad things happen to other people. It's not supposed right. to happen to me. I thought I was invincible to so to have this. Uh, big of an event occurring involving me was completely new to me it was just something that I couldn't really accept
1: yeah I mean I, I had similar thoughts going through my head when I had my injury I'm sure Eric thought the the same thing so yeah, I know with, with him he was having a hard time breathing was that an, an issue for you also yes
0: yeah, so I started to slowly lose the ability to breathe it felt like I was breathing out of a straw it was something that I was really concerned about when I was in the helicopter. and any kind of helicopter, it's loud. You can barely hear your own thoughts. Then my voice was weak, and I couldn't get enough oxygen. I remember trying to just scream and yell for the EMTs on the helicopter, but I couldn't get their attention because I needed help with my breathing. I just started going into a panic attack. I remember just closing my eyes and just focusing on taking one breath at a time and I just counted my breaths to try to convince myself that I could breathe but that was one of the scariest moments I experienced and that was uh, right after my injury as my breathing started to go away
1: yeah man that sounds horrifying especially when you're trying to get someone's attention you're trying to tell them that you couldn't breathe
0: yeah I tried to tell them I couldn't breathe I needed help they told me before the flight that they'd be right by my side and if I needed a trach to assist with my breathing they would uh give that to me but they cautioned that it could cause more damage so unless I really need it then let's right. go without it and I wanted to go without it. I don't want any more damage even I might have needed it at the time uh, but just kind of being stubborn uh, I declined it but then when I really needed them they weren't there but it just made me realize just how you know I had to take control of the situation uh, regardless of what's happening or the circumstances uh, you have to just calm yourself down and i just focus on taking you know one breath one step at a time and i share that with uh, my audiences when i go and speak just uh, it's easy to overwhelm yourself in a situation like that or when you have a lot of responsibilities and you can just kind of stop uh, take a deep breath and just focus on what's most important right now
1: so did, so you didn't end up ever getting the the trach
0: no i never got the trach but i safely made it to the hospital just fine and just what got me through that was just closing my eyes and just concentrating extremely hard on my breathing and just to convince myself I was breathing because I couldn't feel myself breathe or hear myself breathe and so it was a really uh, scary moment for me
1: yeah man I give you credit for staying as calm as you did in that situation like I I know most people would have been freaking out at that point Um, before we move on to like the diagnosis and everything uh, I remember you said that you were embarrassed when you got on the like, when you were on the field and you couldn't get up. Like, where where did those that feeling of embarrassment come from? Like, why were you embarrassed?
0: I just always prided myself on not being hurt or injured or needing, you know, medical attention. I was gonna, you know, play through being hurt. I never wanted uh, that attention to be on me. I just I had too many experiences with other teammates where they will just milk a injury or being hurt to get out of practice or I just kind of almost want the attention for it I just hated that kind of thing and I just wanted to, I just want to play as well and so it's important for me to be on the field and not having that kind of attention so at the time I was just like embarrassed that they had to stop the game for me and
1: right like uh, you were one of the injured guys now yeah
0: I'm one of the injured guys uh, needing attention or something And obviously it was much bigger than that, but that's just how I felt at the time.
1: Yeah. And plus, like when we were growing up playing football, like I know I was always taught as a running back, like as soon as you get tackled, stand up as fast as you can to show them like that they didn't hurt you or whatever. So I'm sure it was like a similar type mindset, but I usually say this question for the end, but because we're kind of talking about it now, you know, what's your definition of toughness today versus what what it was back when you were on the field? you know, embarrassed that you weren't exuding, you know, toughness or.
0: Uh Uh-huh. I think toughness is just being resilient. When I think of someone who's tough is that no matter the conditions or no matter what's thrown at you, you're going to just push through it and excel at a high level and you don't make excuses and you just work. You're just a hard worker of the right attitude. And so that's kind of what I pride myself was just, Uh, being a positive, hardworking person uh, that I was going to not let anything knock me down or sideline me. So that was my definition of toughness was just not being heard and uh, playing through whatever and being a a playmaker. And then, you know, today, uh, still kind of the same idea and philosophy of just uh, being resilient and being able to persevere no matter what life throws at you. When you get knocked down, you got to stand back up and you just got to keep standing back up every time you get knocked down. I think that right there is kind of the definition of toughness in my mind.
1: Yeah, I like that. And I, the reason why I asked that, because I'm very interested in the people's idea of what toughness is, because with my head injury, it was as severe as it was because I was trying to be a tough guy and I played with a concussion and, mm-hmm. you know, it wouldn't have been as bad had I like sat out. But I had the same mentality as you was like, you know, I did not want to be the guy on the sideline. Like I used to make fun of the kids who like sat out for you know like that who we thought were milking injuries. But looking yep. back, you know, the toughness part for me wasn't really playing injured. It's exactly what you said in that it's the ability to get back up and to overcome adversity, no matter what that is, you know. So mm-hmm. cool. For sure. So when you got to the hospital, what was like, their diagnosis? Like Obviously, they knew that you probably had a spinal cord injury, but when did they tell you like, it was C3, C4, and you know, what was the prognosis?
0: At first, they thought it was a complete injury. They didn't tell me that right away, but just reading back through uh, their medical notes. And then eventually, before surgery, they gave me a 3% chance to ever regain any feeling or movement back below the neck. And that was something that I know just floored my family. But it was something for me that I wasn't going to accept. The percentage just kind of went in one ear and out the other. I wasn't going to let it define me. I was going to do whatever I could to push through it.
1: So they told you that as you were getting like wheeled into surgery?
0: It was probably I think it was right after traction is when it happened. Uh, so traction when they had to realign my neck. Uh, my neck was so badly dislocated. It was a grade four dislocation, which is the most severe dislocation you can have. Uh, they had to break it back together, and it was soon after that uh, where they gave me the prognosis
1: so like I don't understand why doctors tell you know kids like these terrible odds like before they're going into surgery like i don 't know why they don't just keep it to themselves. Do you agree with that like how did that affect you you know like going into a serious surgery
0: you know. <laughs> I was, again, I I was pretty naive. Maybe I still am, but it was just something that I didn't let it label me or define me. I just, again, I thought I was going to be above that and push through it, but uh, I'm just kind of maybe naive mentality like that. I think, though, it it can be very detrimental to. anyone, though, because that can get inside your head. You can lose confidence and belief in yourself. And you don't have the confidence belief and that hope. uh, What's going to help you push through the difficult times? And if you don't naturally have that hope uh, yourself, and then hearing that, those kind of news from the doctor could be uh, detrimental to a lot of people. And I've seen it where it's uh, really affected people and how they respond to that kind of news. So I think definitely doctors and medical staff, if there's just they can find a different way to uh, approach and communicate those kind of um, diagnoses.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with you, man. So you said that you've talked to people who didn't have that like innate hope that you have kind of like been either born with or like forged over your athletic career or your experiences. So like, what do you tell those people who don't have have hope?
0: You know, it's really tough because I think everything kind of starts with hope. And then that will kind of fuel uh, your motivation, your attitude, your effort, your purpose. But I try to just then be an example of hope uh, that, you know, this is what happened to me. Uh, this is where I'm at. I've been able to, you know, recover. Uh, you can do as, as well. Like, this is what I did. And if you continue uh, to do what you're doing now, you may not get the results that you want. And right. So that's just something I, I just try to be an example then of hope. And also, I mean, that's what I did too when I was down. I wanted to find other people who were doing great things, who were able to uh, recover. And that just kind of makes you optimistic for your future that if they can do it, um, maybe I can too. So I think that's a big thing too, is just being an example and showing how other people have persevered as well through a similar situation.
1: That's great. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to do with this podcast and sharing your, your story. Uh, so, so once you go into surgery, you know, what, what, what's next in, in the process?
0: You know, when I woke up, I had breathing tubes and wires running from me. Like, my life was flipped upside down. Then it was just going to work. My first therapy session was just nodding my head yes and no. That's the only movement I could do. And then eventually, I, I was able to shrug my left shoulder after surgery, which was a big breakthrough because they didn't think I was going to get anything back and I just eventually I just kept moving the sensation uh, from the top of my shoulders down uh, you know through my stomach and then eventually to my feet, uh, just constantly training in occupational therapy, physical therapy, just doing what I can to try to wake up my body, uh, get it firing again, and just over time uh, that hard work just slowly pays off. When you are getting a little better each and every day, those inches add up over a long period of time.
1: It's, that's a great message. So, like, how long after your surgery did you start physical therapy?
0: I would say I think that, that very first next day, they started doing a little light stretching. I did some head nodding. But it was later that evening after surgery, just kind of, recovering from being put to sleep and all those kind of complications that come with uh, going to sleep for so long for surgery and the the trauma on the body after a major surgery like that but uh, as soon as I was really functioning and uh, coherent with what's going on I wanted to get out of it I wanted to escape it like I didn't want this to be my life and I just kind of kind of went into uh, We went into it as like a fight. Like I'm going to fight my way out of this.
1: So I asked Eric this same question. So like you go from being this college football player, you know, at like the peak of your athletic performance to not being able to move anything. So like, how did you, what, like, how did that make you feel? Obviously, you know, probably frustrated, but how did you handle those, those feelings?
0: That was honestly one of the toughest parts about the whole thing. Uh, you, have a, like a sense of identity. I think we all have our own identity of what we pride ourselves on and uh, what we kind of uh, believe in and who we hold ourselves to. And For I always sure. tell myself to an athlete. I was a competitor. I prided myself on my athletic ability and being competitive. And that was, I thought, my identity in the world, and my value that I offered. And so when that gets taken away, it's just, you know, who am I? I, I ask myself a lot, like, uh, am I still Chris? Am I still that same person, and even though what I've been working on my entire life, which was athletics and sports and uh, physical movement, like, can I still be the same person? Like, And I, I realized that, you know, physical movement is not everything. It doesn't mean like anything else is less valuable. You just got to find it. And I started to pride myself on relationships and connections with you know, family and friends and uh, just whoever I could connect with. And that brought me a lot of value. And I just try to figure out, you know, what can I do um, to offer something back to the world other than just thinking about myself and my physical ability. Yeah. So it, it, it did a lot of soul searching. And I think everybody who deals with spinal cord injury has to probably do that at some point. It's just coming to terms that, you know, I have, i'm gonna have to shift my identity but i also think if, even if you're not injured you can still go through an identity crisis i know uh kind of the joke of the people who are 40 years old maybe wearing a letterman jacket you know like sometimes people love to relive their glory days in high school and that's um all they can talk about and, and like think and refer themselves as like the maybe the jock of high school but then Uh, You can't move on from there kind of thing. I think uh, that's just like one little example. But I think there's a lot of different times that people just hang on to past identities. But as people, we grow, we change. Uh, Life changes and you have to adapt and evolve with it. And uh, you have to adapt and evolve your identity.
1: So like how long after your injury did you start having these realizations? Did it take a while or was it like pretty soon after?
0: It was probably a couple of years after what really turned the corner for me, uh, even while I was in the hospital that first couple of years, was to uh, offer hope and inspiration to other people. Um, People just found uh, encouragement just by me not wanting to give up. Just me training uh, impacted a lot of people. And I saw it as a responsibility and an opportunity to Offer that. And so it encouraged me even more to keep working in my training uh, to give people hope and inspiration that uh, just because uh, something sets you back doesn't mean you can't keep going. And then eventually I you know, went back to school, I started my nonprofit, the SciCan Foundation, and began speaking. And uh, when I started to do more work for other people and to offer back, it gave me fulfillment, it gave me a purpose that was worth living for. So that's really what changed things around for me, and I encourage everybody to really find their purpose, find you know what makes you come alive and do it uh, do whatever you can to bring that fulfillment uh, into your life and because when you have that kind of energy and passion for something, uh, you're just more likely to succeed and feel good about where you're at
1: chris I love that dude that's a that's an awesome message um, so what was like your lowest point throughout your rehab process like what was your rock bottom
0: you know there's a couple of bottoms that you kinda kinda spike up and down but I would say every time when I went to sleep was a bottom for me it just a hit rock bottom it, it was so hard to go to sleep it's just because it's quiet its your thoughts start to run through your head and you're stuck there just laying in a bed it felt like I was locked down to the bed, like I was just strapped, strapped in, and I couldn't move or adjust anything, I got really claustrophobic, and it was just really frustrating uh, time to just go to sleep and just let my thoughts relax, but it also then helped me motivate myself the next day to where I wanted to work myself to the point of exhaustion that when I hit the bed, the lights are out, like there's no way I can possibly keep myself awake,
1: uh, just by it.
0: all the exertion that I put through myself during that day. But every time at night was a rock bottom. And then uh, in a particular, uh, a story that I'll share, I was starting to get some a new sensation in my left big toe. I didn't know what it was, but any kind of new sensation you got excited about. And this is about five weeks in. So I tell my doctor all about this new sensation, hoping to hear some good news from him. And uh, he could care less. And he started just telling me, Chris, you know, you just made that up in your head. Uh, that's what we call a phantom feeling. And I pleaded with him just to take a look at it because I, I was aware of my body. I knew what was going on. I wasn't making right. this up in my head. And, yeah,
1: especially uh, being he, an athlete. Yeah, you know what's going on.
0: Exactly. When you're an athlete, you're aware of your body and your surroundings. And uh, this was something that I knew was real. And he didn't even give me a chance and didn't even look at it and just like, Chris, you're never going to be able to move anything in your legs ever again. And he said it so nonchalant. Yeah, it was like, what, you know, this is just the facts. Like, get over it and then just leaves. And that's like the one thing I've been hoping and working for. You know, for those last five weeks, I've been grinding so hard. And then to have someone of his status just smash you down was, it was devastating. I was crushed. And my dad, who was with me, I was crushed as well. I'll never forget. him. my dad crying. I've never seen him cry before, the strongest person I know, and this was the first time I've seen him cry, and he just told me, Chris, do not let anyone tell you what you can or cannot do. And I looked back at him with tears in my eyes and said, I never will. And I went back to work. I, I just got fired up. I'm going to prove this doctor wrong. And not even a week later, on Thanksgiving morning of all mornings, I wiggled that exact left big toe. He said I would never move again. As you can imagine, I was fired up. I was telling all my nurses and therapists, I'm like, you go find that doctor, who I like to call Dr. Phantom, and bring him in here and phantom this (laughs) as I wiggle my toe (laughs) in his face. (laughs) Did he come in? He was not there that day, so I was probably for the best. I might have been too fired up, but it was a huge moment for me, my family, and everybody that was rooting for me.
1: I know what I would have said to him, but I'll try to keep this uh, PG. So I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll exactly. Be afraid. <laughs> so that's what I'm trying to do. That's <laughs> nah, a cool story, man. Um, so, like when, like when you started, you know, you had movement in your shoulders and stuff like that, like immediately after your surgery, like what kind of feeling did that give you? Was that like, I know you said you had hope before, but what did that do for your hope?
0: I mean, it just reinforced my hope. It just encouraged me to keep going. Uh, you know, even though you have a long ways to go, uh, just keep grinding. And what helped me in that situation, too, was I was able to disassociate my life before my injury and after my injury. So, in other words, I never compared myself to my able body self before the injury. And I knew if I would focus in on that, I would never be happy, I would never be satisfied no matter what progress i was getting so i just compared myself to when i was first injured i had nothing below the neck i'm shrugging both my shoulders like this is this is great and when you can compare it to that versus you know i was benching and cleaning before uh, it just helps your spirits much more and then i just kind of went into you know what can i do today to get better and i just asked myself every single day what can i do to get better and i just wanted to get just a tiny bit better so that I can just keep building off that. So I always look towards the future and not focus uh, too much on where I came from and just kind of stayed in the current and not let myself get overwhelmed by where I was or how far I have to go. I try to avoid those two thoughts.
1: That's an amazing message. I really like that. I've never heard that from any of my guests in terms of like comparing you know, not not comparing yourself to where your your able body. You know, that's that's mm-hmm. powerful. Especially, like, how did you come up with that thought, or did you like speak to a sports psychologist, or?
0: You know, it was just something that y- you could just feel. You, you feel when you when I comp- think of my my life and my abilities before my injury, then I look at myself now. At, that's a sad thought. It's, it's frustrating. Right. You can be infuriating because you know what you used to be. Right. And so I just knew anytime I would think of that, that just kind of lowered. I just lowered my spirits. I loaded, lowered my motivation and my drive. And I knew it was important to keep my spirits up and to have a consistent, motivated drive to get better, to maximize what I could um, with my recovery. And so, I just knew I had to keep comparing it to where I started. And that was just something I naturally did, but it also helps create an environment, a positive environment that's encouraging and uplifting. And my family really helped me with that kind of environment. Uh, They never complained around me. They never felt sorry for me. They were all about, all right, let's work today. Like, what what can you do to get better? Uh, Let's keep moving forward. Oh, Chris, like, look how far you've come since you're, Uh, from day one, that kind of thing. My family helped instill that into me and create that environment where uh, there was never a negative energy in the room. And those kind of energies of whether it's negative or positive, it's contagious. And so, surround yourself with positive influences, quotes, um, whether it's Bible verse, whatever helps keep you positive in the right mindset, that's what you gotta be filled with and be around. And that's what we did. We just surrounded ourselves with positive people. And if you had something to complain about or feel sorry about, don't do it in the room, do it somewhere else in your own time. But this is going to be a positive place.
1: That that's really cool. And I know just from doing like my research on you before the interview, I saw that like your fiance has been a huge part like speaking of support systems, like your fiance seems like she's very involved with your recovery and your rehab. And it's really cool to see. So I just wanted you to kind of talk about, you know, her role in in your re- rehab.
0: Yeah, for sure. I met Emily Summers, is her name, uh, three years after my injury. I met her at Iowa State University uh, through some mutual friends, and we just hit it off right away. I, it was something that I was definitely self conscious about being in a wheelchair and just wondering how she's going to handle it, but. When you can just uh, be yourself and not uh, focus too much on the wheelchair, uh, it just becomes more genuine and authentic, and then other people don't think of you focusing on the wheelchair either. Uh, If you're going to focus in on it, other people will, and it's just something that I'm just going to be myself, and um, it's just my my legs that I use um, to get myself from point A to point B, nothing more. I just do it sitting sustaining and and then also then she just we hit it off and then she found uh, this training facility in michigan called Barwis methods and i'm still training with them today but we moved to uh, michigan where the original location is uh, about five or six months before my graduation and what was significant about my graduation is that i vowed that i was going to walk across the stage of my college graduation and so she was a huge driving force to find uh, the best training out there uh, to walk with me every single night uh, before bed and she's just an ultimate motivator and she believes in me and pushes me and you just couldn't ask for a better support system and a partner like her and uh, she's a huge part of why uh, the success of my graduation walk um, how well it went so I can owe a lot to her and for her drive to make me better.
1: Yeah, it's a great story. And just like all the videos and stuff and how supportive that she is of you, it's like really moving stuff. Um, before you met her, were you ever like worried that you weren't going to meet a girl who would like accept you for who you were?
0: Yeah, I was. I'd, I'd have doubts about it. I just knew, um, I mean, wanting to get a great, a great relationship, I feel like it, it could be Difficult as it is, but then I thought, uh, given a, a situation with a wheelchair with different sort of needs and right, uh, it, there's just different things that you have to think about, some extra responsibilities uh, that you have to consider, and that was just something that it's it can be easy to be self-conscious about, but uh, I'm telling you that I mean there's people out there that don't care, and as long as you don't care and are willing to. Uh, meet people and just be yourself and be open I think people are attracted to that and they're attracted to people who are driven and are motivated to better themselves and other people so no matter what condition or uh, troubles you may have I think if you can just uh, be authentic true to yourself uh, be driven motivated uh, I think that can be very attractive so uh, it doesn't matter if you're able body. if you're an able-bodied person with no motivation no drive to better yourself or anyone around you I mean that's just yeah. not a really attractive Quality, trait. yeah yeah <laughs> at least in my opinion maybe I, I might be the only one but I feel like other people probably feel the same uh, they'd rather be around someone who's really motivated to be a better person and uh, provide any kind of value they can
1: yeah I'm sure Dr. Phantom's still single so so yeah those kind of people don't we don't like those kind of people around here yeah um when did you get the the goal to uh walk across the streets? like what made you like what crossed your head it was like you know what i'm doing this or whatever like i'm gonna put it out there
0: you know at first it was just something for me to really stay focused on i think when you can set a goal uh, that you're really committed to it increases your your focus, increases your motivation, and uh, your work ethic. And so I knew just to keep focus on my training, it would help me work towards that. Then uh, I came to think about it too, that this could also give other people hope, that um, you can achieve the goals and the dreams that you set for yourself, and you, you do have to be willing to fail. That uh, is a possibility, but it's worth it in the end, no matter what happened. So I was—I just went into it that, you know, I'm going to work as hard as I can each and every day. And if I get to that stage and fall, so be it. <laughs> I know how hard I worked and I can live with that. And thankfully though, I, I didn't fall and I was able to successfully walk across the stage with the help of Emily. And another motivation behind that was, like I said, to give people hope and inspiration. It went better than expected. And The video has gone viral and it's been viewed over 300 million times across the world. And we've just been blown away by how successful that's been. But it just kind of shows, too, that the the world needs some hope and inspiration. And there's so much bad news going on. Uh, It seems like every single day I try not to get too involved in it or read about it. But uh, I think everyone can use a little more hope, uh, a little motivation. No matter who you are, I need motivation at times. And I'm happy to do what I can to offer that.
1: Yeah, and you definitely do do that, dude. So, um, so what what was it about that uh, training facility in Michigan? Like, what was what what was different about them as opposed to like any other facility? And is that where the video that I saw that Eric shared is that where you were?
0: Yeah, I was training at Barwis Methods. The video that Eric shared, and I love Barwis Methods because uh, they really help. Push me outside of my comfort zone uh, they uh, I get a lot of training hours there the availability. The atmosphere is incredible uh, you're not in this sterile hospital setting, which no offense to that sometimes you know hospitals have great um, equipment and, and great people, but uh, it's just a little adds a little bit more of energy when you're in a gym with loud music and I'm used to kind you're of
1: going from being an athlete to you know, yes. Yeah.
0: Of course. Yeah. So that, and then uh, they also just believe in me. They believe in the people they work with that um, you will achieve your goal. You know, my goal is to eventually walk independently. I know I still have a long ways to go, but they a hundred percent believe in it. They know I'm going to do it and they are willing to work uh, just as hard, if not harder than what I'm willing to work. And that's something that I always look for in a trainer uh, wherever I train at. Uh, you can go to the best training facility in the world but if your trainer's not motivated to uh, see you succeed as badly as you want to succeed then i don't think it's worth it that's what i really try to find is uh, working with the right person and then all the equipment and stuff is just perks added on it but you can have the best equipment in the world but if you don't have someone that uses it right and is going to push you and and push you outside your comfort zone it's not worth it so i just encourage anybody to find those the trainers and the people that are going to push you, believe in you. And I get that from Barwis Methods, and I get that from my trainer, Nick Lucius.
1: Well, I'm definitely going to link them up in in the show notes so other people maybe going through similar things as you can can check them out also. Definitely. Um, So when did you ultimately come back to your teammates at Luther?
0: I came back for the first time to campus for the football banquet which would have been probably four or five months after my injury. And it was a a bittersweet thing because you're coming back to an area that you're familiar with, but you have to operate and move so differently and everything that how you do it, do things, has changed. But it was always great to see my teammates. My teammates were a huge support the entire time, the whole football program, my entire college. Uh, everybody really rallied around me and to lift me up and visit me as much as they could. And so I'm definitely forever grateful for all those people.
1: Uh, when was like, did you ever get the opportunity to like watch them on the sideline? Like, I know for me with my injury, when I had to go watch my team on the sideline, it was something I really struggle with. So I was curious, like, how you kind of handled that situation.
0: Yeah, my coach was really good about just. Let me be involved as much as I want to be involved. And he always had that conversation with me. Like, Chris, you want to be treated as a coach, as a player, as a player coach. Uh, you, know, what, you know, what role do you want? Like, we'll get you a, a spot on the staff. We'll get you a spot on the team. Uh, you just let us know, like, how involved you want to be. And uh, so they were great. It was just pretty much just an open-door policy. I can come to practice if I want. I can go to the sidelines. Of the games, if I want, I could travel with the teams, and I try to just balance that with my training schedule and class schedule, which was pretty strenuous. So I never really had time to do a practice or do filming or anything um, outside of just being a kind of a fan that would be on the sidelines with them and do some pregame stuff for them.
1: Cool. So, do you think that being on the sidelines was like helpful in your recovery or made it worse?
0: Well, I think.
1: I mean it was hard
0: at first I I know what you're saying I'm trying to think about kind of my progression I think with everything that you're used to doing as an able-bodied individual the first time you're doing it as like in a wheelchair was tough because you remembered how exactly you did it before and so there's always that kind of uncomfortable first time adjustment but it was just something that the more you experienced it, the less you thought about how you used to do it before your injury, kind of like I talked about earlier, just trying to yeah. disassociating those two things. But when something's presented to you in your face of, wow, I used to, that used to be my game jersey. That used to be uh, my position that they're playing. It was hard to kind of – it was a tough pill to swallow at first, but you just kind of adjust to it and you kind of get used to it you kind of get over that sting and then you move on and uh, you, then you just start to appreciate that you're there, that you're alive, that you can be part of the team still no matter what, and you just got to find then value in somewhere else. Uh, and you just can't hold all your stock, all your value, in just one thing of physicality because you'll just be miserable. And so I just moved it to being appreciative, being part of the team and being on the sidelines.
1: Yeah, it's a really mature thing to do for a young kid like yourself. Um I say young kid I'm probably the same age as you but <laughs> how <laughs> old are you?
0: I'm 25.
1: Yeah, 27 so I got a little I got a couple of years on you. Yeah. Okay. But okay, so what are your feelings on kickoffs in football?
0: I think it's definitely probably the biggest risk factor for like spinal cord injuries and head injuries. I think though they're also doing what they can to prevent those injuries from happening i know when i was playing we had a 10 yards running start then immediately after that season you only got five yards head start so just kind of taking down that momentum i know they scooted the ball closer just to avoid those high velocity impacts that people were having on those special teams play but you know i would not be opposed to getting rid of that play but i'm also fine with the adjustments that they are making um, to the play and I also think that what happened to me and i think that Eric Grand probably feels the same way that he was such a freak accident it's it's something that you know happens a million times a season and maybe you know 0.01% chance of the time you know, something like that happens and you have more of a risk factor for a spinal like damaging your spinal cord, you know, running to the gas station, uh driving in a car, riding a bicycle than you do uh playing football with a spinal cord injury. So I don't know, I kinda of weigh it like that and kind of how I think about it. And there's always kind of a risk factor for everything you do. And something that football has taught me so many different lessons that uh, it's just something that you can't teach elsewhere other way any other place than football with like the team and the hard work and the commitment that that really helped me get to where i am today
1: yeah i like i like that man that's a a good response and i don't know how i feel about the situation with special teams like i i think in some ways like with eric he said that you know That's where people make their living. You know, there's some guys in the NFL, like that's what they do is they play special teams and like when you're on a college team, like you were, you know, a young guy Mm -hmm. trying to make a name for yourself, like that's where you do it. You know, so you take that away and you take away opportunities for people. So you know, I can kind of see it both ways, you know. But for sure. All right. Um, so what advice do you have for athletes who sustain career ending injuries, other than using you as an example, because you're definitely a, a great role model.
0: I think just find a new identity. I think it's easy for college athletes, professional athletes. Uh, You leave your sport. It ends abruptly, like, not how you want it to end, not on your terms, which is frustrating, but just find where you can add value somewhere else, something else that makes you come alive and you can um, feel fulfilled by that. Um, So you lose the fulfillment of playing a sport and just find something else that brings you that kind of same joy and fulfillment. So I would just say, you know, find a new identity, do what makes you come alive, and really try to create your own purpose in life, and uh, make it so it's something that you're excited to wake up to. Um, for me, I, my purpose is to just inspire as many people as possible, and that motivates me every single day to do what I do, um, to speak and to start my nonprofit, and just get my book out there. I just want to, you know, be able to give that hope. and. um because I've created a purpose that's worth living for, I don't. I wouldn't change the play. I wouldn't go back and do anything any differently, uh, because I love my life. I'm, I love what's going on, and I feel like I'm being used for a bigger cause than I ever could have done before.
1: That's great. So, when you, as we're on the subjects, can you tell us a little bit more about uh, your SciCam Foundation and how that kind of kind of came about?
0: Yeah, so through my experiences with training and rehab uh, in the Midwest, I found that there's not a lot of opportunities for people with a disability to get access to great therapeutic equipment. I had the luxury of using great equipment at the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota. I go to Iowa, and I was discouraged by the lack of options there were to get better, just to train, just to exercise I think everybody should have access to therapeutic equipment or have access to exercise equipment because uh, even if you're not recovering and trying to get movement back, uh, just that, you know, it's just like there's a a sense of happiness or joy that comes from working out. Like when when you're done working out, uh, you feel good. Maybe not right away because you're dying from the workout, but uh, you feel good about yourself and your self-esteem after you work out. And there just weren't opportunities for people uh, like myself to really excel in their recovery or just their health and wellness. So with that in mind, uh, we decided to start a nonprofit and provide more opportunities for people who uh, have limited mobility or have some sort of disability, not even spinal cord injuries, but... Uh, Whether it's brain or MS or uh, cerebral palsy, there's so many different things that people need uh, just so they can exercise and get better. And we want to provide as many opportunities as we can. And so we've really started just kind of locally within kind of Iowa, Minnesota to get those uh, opportunities available to people.
1: Really cool. And that's definitely finding a a new purpose as well. Exactly. Um, Can you also talk about uh, your book and how you guys came up with the idea to write the book and... Uh, I know faith was a big part of the book as well. So if you could talk about how faith has played a role in your recovery.
0: Yeah, so I wrote my book and published it back in October of 2015. It was something that my dad and I always wanted to do was to write our story and to share that with the world because there's so many different lessons and values that we gained from that experience that we felt compelled to Uh, not hoard it and and just share it with everyone so they can learn from it and be able to maybe get out of a situation like ours and be able to move past it in a positive, encouraging way. Well, we've never written a book before, so that was always something that held us back uh, to writing it. But then we got approached by a writer out of Atlanta, Georgia named Christy Hayes, and she was so moved by my story that she just offered to ghostwrite the book for us and she's a professional author she's written a USA Today best selling book and so had a lot of experiences and of course we jumped on it and we uh, felt in line with her views and her values and her, her ability to write was right where we wanted, way better than ours and uh, she helped put it together for us so if it wasn't for Christy Hayes the book would not be out there and then the book also serves as kind of my Um, testimony to my faith and the importance of faith. Uh, Oftentimes when I speak, uh, that's kind of a sticking point to talk about faith. So it's nice having my book to uh, be available as, you know, how my faith really helped me, but it's not just a faith-based book. Uh, There's so many other things that go on in the book, but faith is definitely something that's been important and it's helped me through those most difficult moments. Uh, believing in God's plan and just praying and being appreciative of what I do have and not what I don't.
1: That's great. Yeah, and I actually recently – I did a book review a little while back on Tim Tebow's book, Shaken. Uh-huh. And I'm sure there's like similar things because he obviously uses faith a ton in his career and, you know, when things don't go his way. So, yeah, I, I did – I did, had I known that you had a book before today, I would have uh, definitely – Went on Amazon and bought it, but I'll I'll buy it after after this uh, this in, th- after we stop recording, and uh, I'll link it up in the show notes and the, just again the the book's called The Power of Faith When Tragedy Strikes. Um, so before we f- finish up the interview, can you t- uh, tell the audience like where they could find you and support uh, the Sai Foundation?
0: Yeah, so the Sai Foundation is just Foundation dot com is where you can learn more about that. If you want to make a donation, uh, we would appreciate that. Uh, If you want to know more about myself and what I'm up to and my progress and updates, uh, go to my Facebook account, uh, just Chris Norton, and follow me there. In addition to that, my speaking website is just NortonMotivation.com. You can see all my speaking information, again, more about my story, um, because it's something that uh, I think... People listening to this might be encouraged to follow. Is my journey to walk Emily down the aisle for our wedding, which will happen in about a little over a year. We don't have the date um, set solid right now, but that's the next mission. The goal is to walk her down the aisle. So that's what's really driving me today and motivate me to train three plus hours a day.
1: Well, get it, dude. I believe in you, man. You. You're an inspiration to everyone, and I appreciate um, you taking the time to share your story and to really serve as a role model for, you know, able-bodied athletes and injured athletes and helping people to transition to a life after sports and finding a new identity. I think um, I'm super excited that I was able to, to get you on here. So thanks, Chris.
0: Yeah, thank you, Kevin, for having me.
1: Chris Norton, everyone.